Life in the Time of Corona. I'm your host, Lindy. Everyone's lives are being impacted by the coronavirus outbreak, but no two people's experiences are the same. In this podcast, we hear from people from different places, different walks of life, with different stories to tell. This time, we are joined by Tim Lobin, an educator and journalist living in Beijing, China. Hi, Tim. Great. Hello. Thanks for joining me on the show. Okay, pleasure to be here. So, tell me, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Enjoying、uh, springtime here in China. Better weather. The sun is out, and it's just yeah, nice to go out and get a bit of fresh air. Pop by the supermarket. Pop by the full supermarket,、uh, not the not the empty ones that I'm hearing about in London. So you know, things are looking up over here. It seems. Tim, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what kind of work you do? Yep.、Yeah, okay. So my name's Tim.、Um, I'm currently based in Beijing, where I teach part time and also engage in、uh, journalism and video editing. Been in Beijing for the last few years, and when this whole、um, Situation concerning the virus hit. I was yep,、yeah, right here in the thick of it at mainland China. I didn't go back home for the Chinese New Year holidays. So, could you give us a breakdown of the timeline? How and when did you first hear about the virus? Okay, so I first heard about it in late December, early January, where I think there was, I think it was the first death, or、um, there was news going around about how. Patients had been admitted into hospitals that seemed to be carrying this mysterious disease, and over the course of like the next week or so, you could see the numbers creeping up by like another one or two cases. And it was that situation where it did kind of seem as if the trend is going to go up, but I don't think anyone would have predicted it would maybe break out in the way that it actually did. So yeah, we first heard the kind of murmurings about it in like late December, early January, where like the first few patients were being admitted, and they were beginning to diagnose this、um, disease. And when did you realize it was going to be serious?、Um, I think it was yeah, like late January. I remember、uh, my friends and I. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, my friends and I went on a road trip. From Beijing all the way to Chongqing, so we covered quite a lot of distance. Like I think, ah,、uh, like maybe nearly a thousand miles or something, perhaps even more. And you know, we stopped at, we made multiple stops before reaching Chongqing. And I don't know, for like the first few days of the road trip, things seemed like fine and you know just normal. And then about when it hit like the twenty third of January. As when we started, kind of, yeah, that's where you started seeing public reports. Before the reports and the stories you were reading about were just kind of like random spreads, like kind of that odd story in the corner over there. Whereas now they were beginning to kind of like make a big deal out of it and kind of like show it in the news and give it more press coverage. And once that started happening, that was when you started slowly seeing people, more people wearing more masks. The hand sanitizers were beginning to sell out, and lo and behold, once the Chinese New Year, Chinese New Year's Eve had arrived on the twenty fourth, I think that was where it had all really kicked in. Like, yeah, things have changed. Like, it's getting serious now, just in terms of um, 
I guess things were closed down because it was Chinese New Year. But I do know that we wanted to visit my friends, uh, my friends, my friend's girlfriend's family in Chongqing. And uh, on our way there, we wanted to make a stop off in Chongqing City in the downtown. And as we were, we were beginning to do that, um, the lady's parents just called him up and just said, like, no, you, you cannot go. Like, uh, we don't want to risk anything. If you're going to come and visit us, you need to come straight to us. You cannot go to the downtown of Chongqing, considering the situation. And I think that was when, yeah, that was when you saw a big change. So I'd say, like, late January, 23rd, 24th of January, where they started reporting it in the mainstream press and giving it more coverage. I didn't think it was going to be, yeah, in terms of the situation where it's spread to other countries and it's just caused a uh, kind of complete stoppage of economic activity and it's just, you know, it's just changed everything. I was right. not expecting it to kind of reach those levels, especially in terms of spread into other countries. I thought it was going to be a situation where you would get an odd, odd case in different countries Kind of similar, like, with what happened with SARS and, like, the MERS virus before and yeah. Ebola to some extent and the Zika virus, where they kind of have their they have their little moment and, you know, people will kind of mention it every now and then, like, oh, be careful, you've got to take this precaution, you might catch this disease. Clearly, the coronavirus has, has yeah, has become a, a pandemic of epic, epic proportions. It's just affected us and taken it to a different level. Yeah, seeing the news coverage here from the UK, I don't think anyone here expected it to spread to the extent that it did either. So could you tell me a little bit more about the timeline of the lockdown measures in Beijing? When did the first measures start to impact you? I'd say, yeah, the first measures really started to be implemented like close to the end of January, early February. That was where it reached a point where they had a lot more checks in place relating to um, where you lived. So I guess, as you like would kind of know, having like been to China and stuff, like they, you know, everybody lives in uh, apartment blocks that are within complexes. It's not like in the UK or London where you can just kind of like stroll up to somebody's house and knock on their door. It's a little different here. And um, in relation to those complexes, those estates, um, it was at the beginning of February where the watchmen and the guards would, yeah, where they impose stricter, stricter measures on entry in terms of anyone who was a resident there had to register themselves and get a special entry card. Visitors could only be admitted under special circumstances. For some complexes across the city, visitors weren't allowed to be admitted at all. It was when they started implementing those rules at the beginning of February where you kind of saw big change of measures. And following these measures, what is your impression of Beijing's response? I'd say when it comes to how Beijing has dealt with it, yeah, it's been they've had strict measures on the complexes and where you live. Um, different bars and clubs have been forcefully shut down where they've just they've just had to close in order to kind of reduce risk. But I will say that with all of those precautions, it's they've done it in a way which is um, smart, in a way that doesn't necessarily shut everything down, down in terms of you go to, you, yeah, you can still go to stores, restaurants, malls. You can still go to all these places and they're open and you can shop there. It's just that, before entering, you know, you will have your temperature checked. 
you might have to register your details, which I think is a good middle ground where you have those checks in place that try to control the outbreak, but also do it in a way that doesn't completely stop the economy. While I'm beginning to notice uh, in, say, other countries, the way they're dealing with it is surprisingly kind of more on the side of like completely shut down everything. Um, People have to stay in their homes. China did adopt a similar approach, but there was there was a bit more flexibility there. And I think that goes back to the fact that for whatever reason, China maybe was more prepared when it came to having the facilities at hands, like the temperature readers, the coronavirus tests and checks, um, having their medical system kind of all on the same page to be able to deal with that. I actually didn't realize this. I didn't realize that the shutdown in Beijing was actually a lot more flexible. Have there been different approaches based on different regions in China? For example, I think the limitations in Wuhan seem to be a lot stricter. Oh, <laughs> oh no, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. As you know, yeah, Wuhan is under actual lockdown where they are, yeah, it's, it's a lockdown of a whole province, you know, Hubei province of about, I think, 50 million people. They're not allowed out. Uh, out of the province and from what I have known there are very strict measures in place relating to um, the people living in the complexes and how they can enter and exit it. I I have one friend who is currently living in Hubei right now and she's just told me that I don't think she's actually like really left her house in about two months I think she may have like gone out to like the um, community garden, like the, you know, the little kind of garden or outside area in their complex to go for a walk and stretch her legs. But I don't think she's done anything beyond that. Right. And for you, it's been very different. You've been able to go out, go shopping, even eat at restaurants. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know with some restaurants, like the busier ones, busier ones, they have a rule in place about um, only 15, like only 15 people are allowed within the, within the restaurant at one time. Right. So a lot more social distancing measures than yeah. actual lockdowns. Yeah, with some flexibility, like McDonald's hasn't closed yet. I actually saw that. <laughs> That McDonald's <laughs> in the uh, UK and all these other countries are shutting down. Um, now that hasn't happened here in um, in Beijing, at least from what I know. Um, yeah, but then McDonald's and some of these fast food restaurants, I guess that's um, where you see the difference in terms of how technology has been adopted in China compared to other places where I guess over here in China, as you know, there's the whole um, WeChat ecosystem. Yeah and how that assists with e-payments where you know over here in wechat if you've got a chinese bank card you just just connect it just connect it to your wechat account and it's sorted and um because of that so that means you rarely have to use so you never actually have to hand over cash right 
No, I I very rarely use cash here. Um, I pay my rent use, using cash. I pay for my groceries using cash. I mean, sorry, using WeChat Pay. Everything I use on a day-to-day basis, including re- relatively large payments, I do use in WeChat. Just because, say, because of that, I guess that enabled them to keep some of those restaurants open like McDonald's because they've implemented it in a, in a way where you don't actually even enter, you don't even go to the restaurant. You, you kind of stand outside of the restaurant and you scan a QR code and you use like a mini app and make an order from there. So it started a way that like still has safety measures, but the show is going on through using that technology. But I guess in other countries that where they don't have that ecosystem, it's not as simple to do that type of thing. So it seems then that technology has really enabled businesses and the government to enforce social distancing without really fully closing down operations everywhere. Yes, yeah, I would agree with that, definitely. So what main differences have you observed in the approach for tackling this virus in China? China may have been more effective at being able to do it because so much of the economy and just everyday life here is kind of managed or tied to the state in some way. So it, it's, it's a lot easier for them to mobilize those resources and address it quickly compared to um, other Western countries. So I guess maybe China might have been slightly swifter in its approach. But beyond that, in terms of the general approach, I don't really, I wouldn't say, yeah, there's been that much of a difference. Like, I think we have to be careful. I do hear people saying, oh, you know, China seems to have it under control now. Like, and look at us, we've been so terrible we can't deal with it we're like running around like headless chickens but you have to remember this is china like two months after all of this stuff popped off about one month ago six weeks ago china was in in this exact same position where it was um testing and it was unpredictable and it was kind of running a bit amok so yeah I, yeah, I look at what's going on in the West and it just seems like kind of a replay of what we saw happening in China, in all honesty. And what's your response to people who say China didn't act early enough? They didn't listen to the doctors at the early phase when the virus was still in the containment phase? Like, first of all, I guess I'm not going to use it as an excuse to try and try and justify, like incompetence or what have you but you have to bear in mind like the scale of China in terms of like the country and its people and the whole provincial system and everything in between that so yeah there was always going to be some hiccups there in terms of like how decisions were implemented and how like um, the information was kind of like directed and reported to the relevant like departments and people responsible for it I think you're it was always going to be a bit shaky there. But I'm going to, well, I'll yeah. say this point though. And that is, um, yeah, I guess moving forward. Yeah. Prevention is b- better than cure. Um, maybe there are things that China could have done to um, better kind of prevent the situation before it really like sprung out of control. But then 
the real source of it, as we saw with the situation concerning SARS, from what the research is saying, for now anyway, it's the whole situation concerning like um, these wildlife markets and uh, the, the wildlife wet markets and the situation where you've got like um, maybe one form of wildlife, like a pangolin or something, sharing a cage or being in the same space as like a chicken. And oh no, there's all these kind of conditions surrounding those wild those wild food markets that you get in different parts of China. Um, which on the one hand I understand it um it helps provide like a crucial living for a lot of people, um, in terms of uh like economy and jobs and businesses, especially like rural um rural communities, like people in the countryside. So there are some difficulties there about how you regulate it and manage it because there are there's this large industry surrounding it. But on the other hand, yeah, maybe uh, moving forward, like they just have to perhaps try to just get rid of like kind of do away with that whole kind of market and that whole food culture because it's just not yeah. worth the risk or hassle. Yeah, interesting you're bringing it up. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of Chinese food culture in the West that, you know, uh, the culture of eating wildlife food is the reason why, you know, we're having this virus in the first place. What do you say to that? To be honest, like, oh, food is food, you know. Um, I don't know, I'm not really one to kind of kind of get snobbish snobbery about that um it's not my cup of tea i wouldn't necessarily well i don't know maybe i would if i gave it a try like i don't really i don't know we have these arbitrary kind of boundaries and values concerning like what is seen as um socially acceptable meat and what is seen as socially unacceptable like how's it how's eating eating pork or eating lamb so different from eating a wild pangolin or from eating donkey meat or I don't know I don't really yeah I don't really see the big fuck so I guess the argument is then more about the regulation around wildlife wet markets and um, the proper separation between different livestock products and maybe even testing of these products for potential viruses that may be harmful to humans. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, yeah, I agree with you there. Like, um, oh, like food is food. Like, I mean, if we want to, you know, really want to, if we all really want to take it there, like, if you're eating meat, you're eating meat. Like, you're kind of, you're already in a like bit of a messed up position, like, and I'm, I'm and I'm saying that as someone who's a meat eater myself, you know. But I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna fool myself. So I don't know what kind of um product, what where the pro- productivity is, and saying, oh, okay, but um, we eat pigs who apparently have like the t- intelligence of a full three year old child, like you know, they have the equivalent to a three year old child's intelligence. We eat those pigs, but we don't eat dogs, so you know we're not we're not so bad. I don't know. And what do you think about the 
xenophobia we're starting to see around the world against Chinese people and Asians in general. Yeah, no, it's... um. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm quite conflicted when it comes to this issue. Like, it definitely is a, yeah, it's a sad thing to see, and it kind of harkens back to um, past stereotypes concerning Asian people, Chinese people in particular, in terms of, like, I think it was, like, the USA and other European countries would use the reasoning of, our, oh, you know, Chinese people are apparently, like, unhygienic and carriers of certain diseases, so that's why we should, like you know, not accept them into our country. So I don't know if you're aware of that, but at least in the USA, there were, at certain periods of time, in the 19th century and for part of the 20th century, uh, travel bans. Like, uh, Chinese people were just banned from coming to the USA. Similar to the type of Muslim ban that you see today, right? Yeah, yeah, but it was just enacted for much longer, and it, I guess it was, yeah, and and I, I think part of the rationale behind it was going back to this whole diseases thing, and then you know, lo and behold, how many decades later, you kind of like see it, people harkening back to that, and you, you know, that's as clear as day with the Trump administration, where two or three weeks ago, I don't remember anyone in the US administration or mainstream media referring to the virus as the Chinese virus, from what I can recall. A lot of people are just saying coronavirus, maybe a couple would say Wuhan coronavirus, but they wouldn't say the Chinese virus. That's only something that's recently become a thing and it does fall in line with um, the outbreak becoming more of an issue in the USA and in turn applying more political pressure to Trump. So yeah, to suddenly start calling it a Chinese virus and, you know, relying on that age-old tactic of um, spurring xenophobia and in turn, like, you know, jingoism in, in the sense of kind of rep- weaponizing that xenophobia in order to spur nationalism and patriotism in your side, on your side because his talks of the Chinese virus also fall in line with him, with him saying this Chinese virus is hitting us in a way which is like a war. So you can see how he's framing that. Yeah, that's classic Trump politics. Yes, yeah. And it's, it is building on something that, yeah, you know, it, whether it goes back to the trade wars or the whole situation concerning like the granting of visas to like Chinese, um, like science-based students, like engineering students computer science students how they're like beginning to clamp down on that because yeah they're kind of like viewing it as like yeah you are on their side so it is building on that whole rhetoric and you know it's something that I guess Trump himself can use to score political points on the other hand though and I'm gonna have to kind of like I'm gonna have to be a bit honest here it's a tricky one because um yeah like I don't call it a Chinese Chinese virus I'm not going to go by those labels. I'm not going to buy into those things. But on the other hand, um, if I were to ask you, I think about a year or two ago, since, yeah, over the last couple of years, there's been a virus that has affected China's pork market in terms of its killing off of the pigs. I don't mm-hmm. know if you heard about it. Yeah, I have heard about this. All right, well, have you asked any 
Chinese person on the street. Yeah, so anyone on the street is it's the African, uh, yeah, African swine beaver, I think. And so, you know, like, that was very recent and nobody thought to not, to, to call it something else other than, than the African swine fever. Then, you know, there's a situation concerning like Ebola when that broke out. And, you know, I was, uh, I was here when in the later years of the outbreak and yeah, you know, people here, you know, they weren't saying necessarily the nicest things about um, Africans at that time. So I guess this sounds like, you know, we as humans haven't gotten over racism yet, blaming other countries and people for problems that occur in our own countries. Yeah, it's just, it's just more, yeah, the contradiction. It's like, okay, now that it's happening to you, it's a big problem. But you didn't have that same energy when it was like the African swine fever and fever, when it was Ebola. And even now, um, now that the coronavirus is affecting other countries and you've got um, returning expats who are coming to China, I'm actually, I don't think it's widespread and I haven't experienced it in my day-to-day life, but I am beginning to hear that like... Uh, a slight bit of xenophobia is slowly being directed towards foreigners because now all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, you guys are the ones with the disease now. Now you're going to bring it back into our country. Just a kind of a... Wow, I can see how that can be considered very hypocritical. And do you think that's a growing sentiment amongst the Chinese population? Um, I won't put it to a level of a growing sentiment, but it like... Yeah, it's a growing sentiment at, at a very small level right now, but it's definitely something that I feel it, it could be exploited. And right. there is like, I've heard f- stories from a, f- a few friends across different parts of China where, I don't know, the way kind of maybe people are looking at them or things that people have said to them have just kind of been a bit off over like the last week or so. So again, it's just like the xenophobia. You have to come with the same energy. You know, you can't, can't complain about this shit when it affects you and then like not that's when it becomes difficult for the rest of the world to really care you know yep i agree that is not a good look so going back to your own life what has been the biggest change for you on a day-to-day level yeah so i say on a day-to-day level yeah yeah as i told you as i mentioned before i also i teach here i teach at a, a middle school and yeah, that's they've shut down, so that's definitely changed from a day to day level. Um, the nature of work, um, I'm doing a lot more work remotely now, yeah, it's just not as many opportunities to socialize because, oh, yes, yeah. you're gonna say, yep, yeah, there's not as many opportunities to socialize because they're not there aren't as many social venues open, and even if they were to be open, your friends and people you know aren't as willing to go out because of the fears concerning the virus yeah i guess that's the case probably just about everywhere now and what's the perception now that china seems to have reduced domestic cases to a very low level are people more optimistic now and looking forward to going out again they had a good run for about two or three days where no domestic no domestic cases were reported there were imported cases where you had 
um, people returning from abroad who brought the virus with them and, you know, they got quarantined and blah, blah, blah. There were, so yeah, there was a couple days, like over the weekend, like Friday, maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where there were no domestic cases. And that was like great and great to see and really encouraging. But over the last few days, few days, the, yeah, the domestic cases are beginning to creep up again. And it could be that situation where people are going out again. And do you believe in the numbers that China is reporting? What do you think, um, or what would you say to those people who think that the numbers are all fabricated? I think um, the reality of the numbers is that, yeah, naturally, I think they're going to be, I'd say, incomplete. Like, I don't think it's a situation where the government's necessarily hiding the numbers or window dressing them. It just may be a situation where, what is the full scale of this virus? Um, and how do you, you know, Beijing is a city of 25 million people. I mean, how are you going to find, you can't, like, how are you going to pull up on 25 million people and, like, test them all to check if they have the virus? That That's not feasible. It's not something you could just do anywhere that that scale (laughs) so you know you're yeah you're never gonna you're never gonna really know how many people have it like really i guess there's two things here one is that it's a politically sensitive question so i don't really want to put you in a difficult position to answer it but the first is can we really trust china in its reporting around the virus both domestically and internationally The other, I guess, is if there's such limitations to the methodology of counting um, and assumptions, then why do countries report on these numbers at all? And why should we use these numbers as a baseline for decision making? I think the fact is, until we have the problem under control in our own countries, we don't really have the ability to analyze or dispute numbers from other countries. And until then, I think the only thing we can accurately rely on is the free capacity in our hospitals. But let me ask you another question. In terms of impact on you working and living in Beijing, which businesses do you think have been most affected by the outbreak? Okay, so I'd say when it comes to businesses and how it's affected Beijing, working and living, but yeah, to start with businesses, I'll say... The hutongs. I don't know you. You know the hutong areas in Beijing. Yeah. So these are the traditional courtyard compounds yeah. in central Beijing, right? Exactly. So, and yeah, as just as you described it, there these like they're not like your kind of typical block of apartments, like with loads of people. These are like kind of single dwellings, kind of narrow sort of enclaves and basically that's kind of like yeah it's a breeding ground for disease for outbreaks so understandably they become a lot more strict with entry into those hutong areas they are still within a very 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 small space maybe not the most advanced sewagery so i think all those different conditions maybe it's felt that they're more vulnerable to um different diseases and not to mention that these hutongs are kind of used as like um through fares for like bicycles and like just uh, pedestrians who use them as a shortcut to cut through to other places. 
they're a lot more difficult to uh, gain entry into. Um, you have to maybe have somebody come out and collect you. But it's just essentially essentially created a situation where like the coffee shops, the bars, the restaurants that are all located in those places, partly because it's like got a romantic backdrop and it's cool and it has that kind of sleepy vibe. A lot of them just going out of business because they're just not going to get like the passing trade. <laughs> yeah. So like they're going to get hit really hard. Then there's the fact that I think there's still a lot of migrant workers who come from other parts of China to work in major cities such as Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. There's still many of them not be allowed entry back into Beijing. And I can imagine that's also affecting the economy in Beijing in terms of its uh, capacity to just really get to working and producing the like scale of goods and services that Beijing is normally used to having. And has Beijing enacted any economic or financial measures to support these people or businesses? I know that. I think mean, yeah, the government has implemented a number of measures to help businesses kind of um, get through this period I think it may be like preferential access to loans or maybe rent holidays but I don't think it, it hasn't really been anything beyond that anything extensive um, there's also the fact that all treatment all coronavirus related treatment was free for anyone who was inflict- afflicted with it which was good the policies that I'm seeing in like America and the UK where they kind of have like a goodie bag handed out like pay packets to everyone and rent holidays and paying their phone and rent and their like Netflix bills and everything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they're going that far. (laughs) Who knows? Give it a few days. I know Hong Kong did something similar, but no, that's not, doesn't seem to be happening in China. So what's your impression of those measures? Uh, My impression of it is, I'd say, yeah, no, I'd say, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, with that approach. Do everything you can to contain the economic fallout. I would say, though, that as as nice as those policies are in terms of like a monthly UBI of sorts, like universal basic income and the rent holidays and mortgage holidays and things of this sort, those do help. But then they need to, I think, most importantly, find a way to, yeah, just contain the outbreak in terms of like getting as many health workers on the ground, testing people, helping to administer treatment, having um, the technology there in terms of the temperature readers, all these different things to um, kind of monitor, identify and prevent the spread as much as possible. Because it's like, yes, uh, paying the paying people's bills and supporting them in these ways. This is nice, but sooner or later, people got to work. Like um, those things aren't going to. Uh, it will save the economy from going into a freefall, but it won't stimulate growth. What's going to stimulate growth and economic activity is people back out and working and going out and spending their money. Um, this situation. As long as people aren't going out and doing those things, the economy is going to like be stuck in like this the state that it's in right now. So it's good, but more needs to be done. 100% agree. And I think now China is encouraging people to go back out and work. Have you seen that happening? Yes, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, a lot of people are 
going back to work like in office um or kind of spending half of the week working from home and the other half in office um yeah but then that's that's in part because of the measures they they've implemented in terms of the temperature readers and having all of this technology there at the workplace and everywhere everywhere you go to detect or do their best to detect potential carriers. And you're not scared of a potential relapse once people go back out to work again? I think a relapse could still possibly happen, but maybe it won't be as bad as the initial one because of those checks. Maybe it'd be a slight relapse and then it'll get contained very quickly because they have the technology and the tools to quickly identify who has it and then um, separate, quarantine and treat them. Yeah, that's that's the hope for all of us. Yeah, I hope things start looking up back there in the West and yeah, just bring that focus on the virus and fighting it because those economic measures are good, but yeah, you can give you can pay somebody's salary, but if they're gonna like what are they gonna do with the money? Okay, they'll use it to pay some of their bills, but are they gonna use it to like go out to restaurants and bars and go shopping and do all the all these things that stimulate the economy no because they're not going out and like they're scared of getting a disease so yeah it's not gonna it's not gonna stimulate growth if they want to really get the economy back to normal they need to get people out and working again definitely agree with that and i hope it'll be sooner rather than later thank you so much for speaking with me today tim it was a pleasure speaking with you No, yeah, cheers. Thanks to you. Thank you for listening to Life in the Time of Corona. I'm your host, Lindy. Connect with us on coronatime.live and next time we will be speaking with Karima, a London-based sound engineer who usually tours the world. She will discuss how the virus has impacted the global music industry and what it's like going through the universal credit system.